Welcome to Inside Outside Innovation, episode 65. Today's episode features special guest Jason Kalkanis, longtime angel investor and author of the book Angel. He and Brian talked about why he wrote this particular book, what it takes to be an angel investor, and how senior executives in a corporation can harness the power of angel investing for the sake of their personal portfolio and the benefit of their company. Jason's handle on social media is at Jason, and you can find his book on Amazon. Hi there, everyone. I'm Victory Clafter, the producer of Inside Outside Innovation, the podcast that brings you the latest insights from people who know the most about building lean businesses, innovating within corporations, and disrupting entire industries with passion and precision. Jason, thanks for coming on Inside Outside Innovation. Thank you for having me, Brian. I am uh, more than excited to talk to you because you and I are probably about the same age and have been in this space for a long time. And when I started reading your book, you started out, Angel, uh, talking about this concept of disruption. And basically, I think in the first chapter, you kind of put the fear of God and probably anybody's reading it about the new technology and the new dis- disruptions that are happening out there. And I wanted to start this conversation a little bit about you know what's different this time around, because you've been in the technology business for quite a long time. Yep. What's different this time? So... If you look at the history of employment and revolutions, we have had humans doing uh, arduous, hard, dangerous work for a long time. But the repetitive hard work has been through the Industrial Revolution and the Technological Revolution and now the Information Revolution. A lot of that is being automated. And, you know, we used to have a time when there were tons of phone operators. And when you wanted to talk to somebody on the phone, you know, somebody connected the call. And there was a lot of outcry when those jobs went away. There were a lot of outcries about when horses went away, all the people who worked in, you know, carriage houses or made wooden wheels or cleaned up horse dung, you know, like what's going to happen to these people? And we found other productive work for them. And so there is one camp of people who believes that artificial intelligence and machine learning i.e. computers learning how to do tasks that were previously considered too complex for a computer, there's a theory that those technologies, which are ramping up at an exponential or rapid pace, depending on who you believe, uh, and robotics, also something that is growing maybe not exponentially, but consistently and deliberately, is going to take a whole category of jobs and make them go away. So we can all agree without much um, controversy that the idea that somebody would be a phone operator, we don't mind those jobs going away. Now at the time, it, it was pretty heartbreaking, I'm sure, when you know 100 people who were working at you know, JP Morgan or somewhere on Wall Street were let go in whatever year that was. I'm sure there were a lot of tears and it's never easy when people lose their jobs. So I would never want to be cavalier about this. But now we have groups of people who we didn't think would lose their jobs. uh, And we certainly didn't think they would lose their jobs so quickly in danger of doing so. So if you look at two big categories, truck drivers and cab drivers, right? As well as retail workers, uh, which includes people who, you know, make coffee or work at the register. It's pretty clear to me that those 
20, 30 million jobs in the United States. It's, it's rounded up to about 30 million in those two categories, retail and transportation. The majority of them, perhaps even the vast majority of them, will be gone in the next decade or two. Mm-hmm. Will they be replaced? Will they be able to transition is a big question, but those are very large chunks. At the very least, those people are going to struggle to find new work because the people who are knowledge workers obviously are going to be much more highly trained and skilled than people who are, you know, maybe driving cars or, you know, working at a cash register. Doesn't mean they don't have the potential as humans to evolve and do you know, more complex tasks, but let's be candid, it would take years of training that maybe there's nobody to, who will pay for that. Certainly the government has proven to be inept at doing those kind of things. Mm-hmm. There's another group of people who believe, you know, there's always going to be jobs and don't worry about it. But what feels different this time is that it's also white collar jobs, like say being an attorney or an accountant that might be replaced. And that people say, well, that seems ridiculous. But some people who are working on the inside are saying, well, actually, if a computer can beat people at chess, and then at more complex games, like say poker, which involve bluffing, and other, you know, unknown data sets, like chess is a finite data set, right? There's, the pieces are all obvious. But then you have games with massive data sets like Go, you know, the Mm -hmm. Chinese game where you Mm -hmm. flip little pebbles and you jump each other and take them off the board. That was one that they didn't. They thought would take many more years for the Go computer to beat the Go masters. And in fact, they're beating teams of masters now. <laughs> so if we think about our jobs, you know, if you're a writer writing uh, for a local news publication, or you're a teacher, or you're an accountant, or a lawyer, is your job more complex than playing Go or being a chess master? Perhaps not. And perhaps there are some subtleties to it, or some nuance, of course. But I do believe that we're going to this time, and nobody knows for certain. So anybody who says they know for certain is completely lying. The question is, does this time either more severe in terms of the job loss and the transition and the pain that occurs? And then second, will there actually be jobs created for those people? Well, it also seems like it's, you mentioned you have kind of cross industry, but it seems to be hitting multiple industries at once. Where it Correct. Seems to- take a lot longer for these. Uh, you could keep your existing business model for quite a long time in the past. I think, you know, if you look at the S&P 500 back in when it first started, it was 60 years you could be on that particular list. And now it's down to, I don't know, 12, 14 years, somewhere around there. And so this pace of evolution of uh, technology costs going down, access to markets going up, and the ability to, in every industry to have these new startups and these new innovations be open to experimentation and, and creation is something that seems to be uh, changing the world. Yeah, and that's where, you know, the the reason I wrote the book, I had many opportunities to write books over the years and turned them all down, but I really wanted to write this book was I felt like this change was going to be very significant. And I feel mm-hmm. like the the ability to move from your station in life, where you were born, the the caste or the, you know, economic circumstance under which you were released onto the world, Mm -hmm. your ability to move up and down that ladder, I believe is at risk. And I'm not the only one, right? Obviously, Bernie Mm -hmm. Sanders' entire campaign was based upon, hey, it's just hard to get out of the 
it's hard to move to the middle class. It's hard to move out of the middle class and become affluent. It doesn't seem too hard to go from affluent to super affluent. That seems to be getting easier, actually. Um, <laughs> and being affluent is getting easier, uh, it seems, um, once you're there. And the reason is the traditional ways in which we made money uh, and wealth was accumulated, uh, we kind of rode those for all uh, and our parents did for all it was worth. And so how do you create wealth? Well, I believe that wealth creation comes from being on the cap table, the capitalization table of early stage startups. I believe that this is the ultimate hack in society right now. Some people thought real estate was a pretty good hack, right? And we, we had right. books like The Art of the Deal and Rich Dad, Poor Dad and the secret millionaire on the block, all these kind of books existed in the 20th century um, that looked backwards and said, how did all these people get rich? And it usually turned out they were like, had a white collar job. They kept their expenses really low. They packed their lunches. You know, they didn't go on vacations. They did staycations. They were super conservative. They didn't go out to eat and they bought an extra house. Then they, the house went up 10X and they put it in the stock market and they sold their house and they wound up having a million dollars when they died. That opportunity is harder now. People are coming out of school with debt. They're coming out of school to a real estate market where things are incredibly expensive and housing is incredibly limited and you got to live in a city. And so if you got to live in a city, you got to rent and you can't own. And this, this whole hack of real estate, you know, professional career, modest lifestyle plus real estate equals you die a millionaire. I, th I don't think it works as well. So one of the ways that you're recommending is, is basically take a look at the, the new opportunities in angel investing and, and basically access to private markets that weren't there before. Correct. Uh, so talk, talk to us a little bit about um, why do you think people should become angel invest investors and should everybody become angel investors or what's your thoughts around that? So I believe that anyone can do it. I believe that few will. Mm -hmm. But I felt like it was worth writing the book if I could inspire 100,000 people or even 10,000 people to take it up. Because in the book, I share everything I learned and all of the mistakes I made and how to do it even if you have a small chip stack. And mm -hmm. I'll, I'll tell you some of those secrets right now. And I don't, just so you know, like I don't need to make any more money in this lifetime. I'm not saying that to brag. It's just kind of where I'm at. And I'm only going to angel invest for another four or five years. I may hang it up when I hit 50 or 55 or something. I think, you know, you have a certain window to do this. It's a, it's a, it's a lot of work and I may, you know, just move on. And it's not exactly a zero-sum game, angel investing. Usually angel investors operate as a gang and they operate as a syndicate of individuals who work together to get a company from the angel investing stage to the venture capital stage. The venture capitalists then work to make it a public company. So if more people become angel investors and they send me deal flow in a very self-centered way, the book could make me the hub of other angel investors who send me deal flow. So right. giving that context, one thing that's happened over the last couple of years, and I go through this strategy in the book, is the development of micro angels and non-accredited investors being able to invest in private companies. So let me unpack that a bit. There's a concept called the syndication of a deal. As an angel investor, I could put 25K into a deal and then using a platform like Funders Club, Seed Invest, AngelList, or Republic, or any of these number of sites, mm -hmm. I could then syndicate, or through my own site. I do my syndicate now. I started on AngelList. Now I do it at Jason's 
syndicate.com. Mm -hmm. I allow anybody to sign up. If you're an accredited investor, which means you have a couple of million dollars in net worth, you can look it up on the SEC's website, accredited right. investor. You can invest alongside me. And then soon, non-accredited investors will be able to invest alongside of me. I invest 25K. I then tell the company, my syndicate, my syndicate, my friends who are angel investors, I'm going to tell them about your company and my investment and offer them to be allowed to invest $1,000 to $50,000 as a group each. And we'll try to put round up another hundred dollars to $250,000. How does that sound to you? Right. And the startup goes, wait a second, you can put not just your 25, but you'll bring another hundred or 200? Sure, let's go. And so then if that $100,000, then let's say, uh, 50 people in my syndicate put $2,000 in each. We have $100,000 plus my $25,000. As the person who syndicated the deal, my reward for sharing the deal and doing the legwork is I get 20% of the carry, which is 20% of the increase in value of that $100,000 if it does increase. If it goes to zero, I get nothing. If it becomes worth $200,000, there'd be an increase in $100,000 in value of which I would get 20,000 and then the people who made the investment would get the other 80. So there's a good incentive for me to do it. I could get more upside, right? It's like leverage on your money. And there's a great thing for individuals who wanna try angel investing because they can invest a small amount of money alongside somebody who hopefully has more experience than them. Right. So it's kinda like, you know, you may not wanna ride the motorcycle yourself, but if you know somebody who rode a motorcycle for 20 years and you're sitting on the backseat and you trust them, Great. You know, you just, you lowered your risk of you just jumping on the motorcycle or jumping out of an airplane, whatever uh, yeah. metaphor you want to use. You can learn from me. You can draft off of me and make 10 investments for $2,000 each and then learn and then hang out with the founder, hang out with the other angel investors, ask questions and see how the company grows for just $20,000 to have a portfolio of 10 companies. This is incredibly efficient way to start your career as an angel. Right. And, and most folks wouldn't be able to necessarily uh, put money directly into a venture capital fund. And secondly, when you do so, it's, it's you don't really have, you lose the control from uh, a lot of sides. Right. So you're talking about being what's called a limited partner right. in a venture fund. So the venture funds do a similar thing to these syndicates, except they raise a $400 million fund and they get $50 million from the CalPERS, California Retirement Fund, or the Yale or the Harvard or the MIT endowments or the Stanford endowments. And those people looking to have a bucket of different asset classes will put a couple of percentage points into venture capital. You could never as a civilian walk up to Sequoia or you walk up to Ryder Perkins or Benchmark and say, can I give you $10,000 to put into your fund? Number one, you wouldn't meet the minimum, which is probably a million dollars or $10 million. Plus, they're oversubscribed. They're the best investors in the world. You don't have access to that. Mm -hmm. But with these syndicates, it's much more open because the companies are so young and so speculative that they only need to raise a small amount of money. So they go to angels, which makes it an opportunity. Right. So I want to shift gears a little bit. So another part in the book you talk about is, is how you really have to be in the valley to kind of find the unicorns and, and nurture them and, and uh, be apart from that perspective of this, these massive home runs. Uh, having said that, you know, in the Valley, obviously you can go from idea to IPO, all the infrastructure's there, all the capital's there, all the people and mentors and everything's there. But, but you're also seeing this kind of rise of the rest, you know, the Steve Case kind of methodology or even like 500 startups where uh, they're looking outside the Valley uh, to find and, and do those early stage investments. Talk a little bit about, you know, the differences in, in those two particular strategies and, and what's pro and con with the, both of those. 
Sure. So uh, Dave McClure is a great example. He's invested in 2,000 companies. I've invested in 150 or so. Um, and I have a magnitude more returns with a magnitude less investments. So um, investing around the world, um, investing outside of Silicon Valley is a fine thing to do if you're not focused on returns. Mm -hmm. If you're focused, and then Steve Case, I think, is specifically focused on a different type of return. He wants to see other regions grow, right? So if you were looking to double your money or triple your money or quadruple your money um, on an investment, I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to invest in second tier cities or cities other than the Bay Area. Now, if you are laser focused on returns, which I am, and which I hope the people reading the book are, I would encourage you to look at the statistics of how often billion dollar, $10 billion and $100 billion outcomes happen in and in what cities. In order, if you're going to do this, I would implore you to do it in the casino with the best odds. If you're going to gamble and you're going to take risk, you want to have an edge. You want to have the, and, and that's what I'm trying to do in the book is give the people who read the book two or three times the ability to look at this process of investing, which has tons of risk, eliminate risk and increase the chances of an outside, an oversized success. If you don't have the chance of an oversized success, you're doing it wrong. And if you're doing it in a market that doesn't have a lot of deal flow, the best case scenario for you is that you might double or triple your money and you might feel really good about yourself because you're the big fish in a very small pond. If that's what you want to do, you want to be the king of Austin, Texas, or the king of you know, DC or the King of Boston or Queen of Boston. And, you know, everybody, you know, comes and, you know, makes their pilgrimage to see you in Boston. That's <laughs> fine. Um, but for me, you could be, you could live in Boston. You could live in, right. uh, you could be Brad Feld and live in Boulder, but you've got to be willing to invest in the companies here. I mean, even if Facebook started in Boston, but ended up in the, in the Valley. So I certainly understand where that, where Y Combinator started in Boston. The entire yeah. program started in Boston. Program was like, what are we doing? Let's go where all the people are. And, you know, there's a chapter in the book that says, do you need to be in Silicon Valley? And it's literally a one word chapter. It's like, yes. And then I go <laughs> and explain why. So I implore people, if you're going to do this, you want to go to the casino where I play. In the casino where I play, I kind of feel like I get the ace of spades first. And then the second card could be any card. I, could, I have a chance of playing a decent hand. Or if you want to use, you know, the Powerball or lottery, like, it would be like starting your lottery ticket, but I have to match four and you have to match eight numbers, right? Like it's a magnitude easier for me to match four than to match eight. All right. So I want to kind of wrap it up on a couple different notes. So a lot of our audience are uh, on outside innovation are kind of corporate folks who are staring at their, their, uh, their industries and, and looking at this disruption. And some of them are dismissing startups probably to their own uh, peril. Um, what would advice would you b give to those corporate folks, either corporate venture folks or folks that are building products in a, in a larger organization of, of how they should be interacting with, with startups and, and playing more of an outside game than an old way of inside innovation? Yeah, I think you really should engage with startups because they grow very quickly. And just the knowledge you'll gain from hanging out with the smartest, most risk-taking people in the world mm -hmm. is going to be worth the price of admission. So if you were at a big company, if you worked at 
Microsoft or you worked at Goldman Sachs and you had a little bit of extra money and you wanted to put 5% of your net worth or 1% or 10%, depending on where you're at in life. I think 5% sounds like a number that if you lost it, you wouldn't feel so bad. Uh, like I would advise my family members, a brother or my mother to, yeah, sure, invest 5% in angel investing. If you lose it all, it's no big deal. But what you'll gain is massive. The knowledge you'll gain and the network you'll build by being involved with these people who are trying to change the world is going to be huge. So I think for corporations, if I was running a corporation, I would actually match dollar for dollar. If I was running, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs or GE, if I was in GE, I would say any senior executive who writes a deal memo, and I outline what a deal memo is in the book and I go through the YouTube deal memo and some of the other deal memos that were written in our industry, and I talk about the ones I write. If they wrote the deal memo where they write their thesis out and why they think they should invest, we will look at it, and for up to you know, two deals a year, we'll match you for $5,000 on your $5,000 investment. I would totally do that because then your employees are going to make five investments a year, two investments a year, whatever, and in an aggregate, you might have 100 senior managers at GE owning – you know, an interest in 500 startups and they'll see all these incredible ideas and all these incredible techniques that they could then bring inside of GE, you know, maybe not in exactly competitive products, but you might say, wow, it's really interesting how they record net promoter score inside of the, inside of this app. Or I was talking to the founder of this company and this is how they do hiring efficiently. And here's how they handle flexible work schedules, or here's how they handle work from home individuals and remote workers. Like this could all become very actionable and very dynamic. And we're seeing that like Intel um, has always had a venture arm, but now many other companies have venture arms and the venture arms, even Google has a venture arm. Um, where you think this is a technology company. Why do they need to do a venture arm? It's like, well, if we have all this money, We'll, get, we'll, we'll almost certainly get a return if we invest it intelligently over some period of time and have diversification and we have smart people running it. But what if we learn some stuff that would become important for the organization down the road or we might be in the pole position to buy the next YouTube or WhatsApp or Instagram or Uber or Tesla and not miss it, right? Yeah. And not missing it is a, you know, a big, big driver. The fear of missing something disruptive when you're GE or you're, you know, craft or, you know, some big company GM, you know, if you miss some big sea change, oh boy, oof, that could be the end of the company. Yeah. And, and companies are not necessarily designed to think uh, about killing their own optimized business model. <laughs> no, how can you, if you, I mean, when I sold my second company to AOL, Ted Leonsis like took me aside. He's like, you see that over there? And he was pointing at nothing. He's like, we have this big money printing machine and it spits right. out hundred dollar bills faster than we can put them in the wheelbarrows. And you see that little machine over there? That's your machine. And it, it prints <laughs> uh, a nickel every 10 minutes. Like everybody in the organization is looking at that machine, but I'm looking at your machine because I think yours is going to print, you know, thousand dollar bills faster than the hundred dollar bill one someday, or that might be the next hundred dollar bill machine. And we might have two of them, right? So that's actually how you have to really think is you have to appreciate the small and the emerging and the intimate and just squint a little bit and say, what if it does work? Here's all the reasons why it's not going to work, but what if it does? You know, And that's kind of been my secret of angel investing is suspending disbelief, making a list of all the reasons why things will fail, ripping it up, throwing it away, and then holding on to the two or three reasons why something might work and then cherishing that list. Even if it's long odds, it will pay off if it does actually come to fruition.
That's the end of another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. We'd love to connect with you through Twitter at the IO Podcast or on our website, insideoutside.io. If you've got a topic or area you'd like us to dig into, let us know because we'd love to share our insights and invite other experts like Jason onto the show so that they can share theirs. Until next time, go out and innovate.